when it isn't peak Fargo and despite being weighted down by ambitions that aren't fully realized thus far, there are sweeping swaths of greatness here. That's Dan Feinberg, a Hollywood reporter, talking about Fargo. That's right, Fargo is back, folks. Season four, they had the debut of episodes one and two. Started at 9p on the DVR, done by 11.45. Yes, with commercials, you're looking at about a solid two hours plus of entertainment. So it felt like a mini movie and it was fantastic. We're gonna talk all about that. Plus. River of No Return, an old Robert Mitchum, Marilyn Monroe film I finally got around to watching. Some news about movies being pushed back. Still have a contract dispute with Scott Rogowski, so hopefully we'll get that ironed out. I'm willing to pay him nothing, and he wants some money, so we'll see how that works out. Plus, the Mount Rushmore TV show is based on movies in honor of Fargo. And the big one this week, a great interview with Glenn Kenny. We're talking 30-plus minutes. Uh, he is an excellent American film critic and journalist, writes for the New York Times and RogerEbert.com, used to write for Premiere. New book, Made Men, the Story of Goodfellas. It's out for the 30th anniversary. I read the book in one week, 358 pages. It's absolutely fantastic, and you're going to love the interview with Glenn because uh, he gives some great answers. He's funny. He's insightful. Uh, so looking forward to that coming up momentarily. As always, appreciate all of your support. Please do go to Apple Podcasts where you can subscribe, rate, and review. That's how we keep the podcast going, so please do. Uh, do that. Don't just, don't just, okay, right, Virk. Another lip service. No, please do it right now. Just go ahead, stop what you're doing. Go to Apple Podcasts, subscribe, rate, review, and that's how we keep this thing afloat. I love the fact we had a couple of really good comments here. This is the first one from meh, meh. That is M-E-H exclamation point, M-E-H question mark. So meh, meh. And I love the fact the subject simply says Joe. That's right, my producer, Joe Engelbrecht. It's specifically about Joe. Way to take out Braveheart. I couldn't watch when everyone loved it. It's a bad movie. Meh, meh. Agreeing with Joe on Braveheart. <laughs> and, and further to the point, Joe, I was listening to the Rewatchables, the great Bill Simmons podcast with Chris Ryan and Sean Fennessy. One day we're going to get on that podcast, I promise you. And um, they were talking about Seven, which I must have been, I don't think is a very rewatchable movie. I've seen it once. I haven't watched it again. I find it, and you know my tastes are dark, but that is a relentlessly grim movie. I mean, that's about as bleak as it gets. Maybe I should watch it again, and those three did a great job talking about it. But one of their points was, 1995, Seven was not nominated for Best Picture, nor was Heat, nor was The Usual Suspects, and Braveheart wins Best Picture. I mean, they started making fun of Il Postino, which is a film you and, you and I both love. Uh, you should definitely check out Il Postino. But those guys were like, are you kidding? How the hell did Braveheart win Best Picture? So, Joe, you've got backup from the likes of Bill Simmons, Scott Fennessy, Chris Ryan when it comes to Braveheart. Oh, I'm so glad to. I mean, you, you said this last week. There's a lot of great battle scenes in Braveheart, but I think just the overall story is bad. And again, Mel Gibson's accent is just not there. But you telling me that right now just what is further affirmation that Hollywood best picture is a lot of it can be political you know, politics, schmoozing, luncheons, dinners. Braveheart's a bad movie. Uh, to that point, I forgot to mention this. We taped the interview with Glenn Kennedy. I'm remembering this now. But when um, he talks about the Oscars and Scorsese, you know, it's a little bit of a yin and yang. On the one hand, Martin Scorsese is the most nominated director ever in the history of movies, best director. I mean, post um, Bringing Out the Dead, which is 99. Every year, you could pretty much bank on Martin getting nominated for best director. Gangs of New York, boom. Aviator, boom. Wolf of Wall Street, boom. Uh, the Departed. Like, I mean, the only ones he didn't get nominated for were like Silence. Um, did not get nominated for Shutter Island. But Hugo, he got nominated for. Like, he's he's actually been nominated. I want to say eight times for Best Director. I know he's been nominated for screenplay for co-writing Goodfellas with Nick Pileggi. 
But it's interesting you mentioned the Oscars because he's got a quote there from David Foster Wallace who says, listen, at the end of the day, these things are all nonsense. And Keitel, when, when Scorsese lost for Goodfellas, said, well, I don't think he wants to be a part of it because you know what? They just reward mediocrity. And Lorraine Bracco said, well, obviously it's a joke that Dances with Wolves beat Goodfellas. Like, it's not even close. And specifically to the Irishman, Glenn Kenny makes the point in his book, once again, you should buy it, it's called Made Men. The reason why the Irishman didn't do better is twofold. One, he said this ridiculous controversy that why didn't Anna Paquin say more in the movie and Scorsese silences women, which is the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Go watch Alice Doesn't Live For Anymore. Great female part from Ellen Burstyn. Go watch The Age of Innocence. Two great female performances from Michelle Pfeiffer, Winona Ryder. Go watch Casino. Great performance from Sharon Stone. So don't give me this, oh, Marty doesn't treat women right. That's, that's complete BS. And he also points out the fact that because Marty took that shot at Marvel, and as Glenn Kennedy writes in his book, a perfectly rational explanation for Scorsese, which is that the Marvel Cinematic Universe is not, in my view, what I think of as cinema. Like, what is offensive about that? So, uh, back to your point about the Oscars being stupid. The Irishman did not win a single Oscar. Uh, Glenn Kenny points in his book. Could be twofold there. One, Anna Paquin didn't say much, <laughs> didn't say enough to deal with what people wanted, and perhaps Marty shouldn't have taken a shot at Marvel. That is neither here nor there. Thanks, as always, to my friend Sam Surface, who also, by the way, I shouted her out, and she, she listened to me. She went on Apple Podcasts. She subscribed. She rated. She reviewed. Sam Surf the Boxer. Always feels so much smarter to listen to Adnan's podcast. He has one of the biggest vocabularies I've ever encountered. I'm not sure about that. We are friends. His eloquence, his passion make me laugh out loud. Sam's the best. Her dad just got remarried. Her dad's awesome. Congrats to Sam and her family. She's, uh, she's always a great listener of the podcast, and we appreciate her. A couple of people from the past. That's right, the ghosts of cinephile past. The great Rick Passmore used to do a segment called In Defense Of. He still remains a good friend. We text all the time, and he always listens. He took me to task on what I said about the Emmys, um, the fact that I was saying I'm tired of Oliver. And he said, well, hang on a second. He said, if you look at, here's what he wrote. Got to disagree with Oliver. That show has done so much in terms of awareness of diverse topics. He and his team deserve it. It's so much more than the quirky jokes. Colbert is great, but it's well done, obvious bits. I texted back, but he does 30 shows a year. Colbert is 150. And Ricky texted back, that's batting average 800 at 30 plate appearances versus 350 at 150. I like the baseball analogy. We're taping this Tuesday. Baseball playoff start. Joe's twins right now are playing on ABC. And he's look at how loyal he is. We're still doing Cinephile. Also, Mark Simon, who is a very devoted member of the podcast, never misses an episode. Um, he loves the documentaries, loves Stars and Stripe, that documentarian I talked to. Uh, Mark gave one of the worst ideas ever. He texted me, I think you might want to have a rule. There needs to be one positive review per show. I said, I don't understand the point of the rule. What if there's only one movie being reviewed? He said, the point of the rule is that in these negative times, we need positivity. If all you do is trash a movie and tell me you're going to, I'm less incentivized to listen. This is in reference, obviously, to the fact that I crapped all over Capone, and I still crap all over it, just like Capone craps himself in that movie. As I wrote back to Mark, I don't agree with your logic. Some of the most memorable moments of Siskel and Ebert wasn't when they tr praised a film, but when they trashed it. Roger Ebert even wrote a best-selling book, I Hated This Movie. And you want me to tame down what I believe to be warranted criticism because the world is screwed up these days? That's not my fault. And Mark wrote back, LOL, okay then. Good news is, I'm not trashing Fargo. Fargo's awesome. And the new season, awesome. Fourth season set in 1950 in Kansas City. Two crime syndicates fighting for control. Cass is led by Chris Rock. Great article in The Hollywood Reporter. Guy's 55 years old. He's got washboard abs. He learned to start swimming at 55. He's going through a terrible divorce. He said it cost him all of his money. That's why even he admitted a couple movies and some projects he's doing for the paycheck. Um, 
it went to therapy, does seven hours of therapy a week. He suffers from the, this, this disorder in which he can't understand other people's body language. There's a specific term for it, but if you love Chris Rock, you should go read this article. It was really, really well done. And of course, he says that Fargo is the role of a lifetime. He is playing Loy Cannon, the head of a crime syndicate made up of black migrants fleeing the Jim Crow South. And in the article, he points out, you know, a lot of people try to do black and they can't do it, especially if they're non-black. And he said in Fargo, when I saw Bokeem Woodbine's performance, I think it's season two, he was like, okay, this guy knows what he's doing. And the, this guy in this case is Noah Hawley. Noah Hawley writes, directs, he created Fargo. The first season, Billy Bob Thornton, spectacular. Season two, he had Kirsten Dunst. And the third season, Ewan McGregor playing dual roles. Now you've got Rock leading this, this crew, and then you've got Jason Schwartzman, loved him in Rushmore. Here he's playing Josto Fada, part of the Italian crew, and see what they're up to. You've also got Jesse Buckley playing a nurse who's up to no good, and she might actually be the best part of the show after watching the first two episodes. I don't want to give away too much, okay? People get upset. They see you spoiled. Fine, I'm not going to spoil nothing. Go ahead. Watch Fargo. Um, normally, we review things when they're done. But I reviewed this after two episodes because as Joe pointed out, everyone's talking about it. So just go ahead and review it after two episodes. And if you want to review the whole season later on, we'll do that too. Great. New rules. There are no rules here. Four Maple Leafs for the new season of Fargo. Chris Rock, coiled intensity. I like the paternal relationship with his son. Schwartzman, excellent. Like I said, Buckley's really good. The, the look of this thing. I'm going to pass the baton to Joe here in a second because he's from Minnesota, don't you know? The look of this thing. I mean, you try to find shows that are more visually stunning than Fargo, right now, on TV. I'll hang up and wait. Because seriously, you're not going to be able to find them. I mean, it's so immaculately constructed. Just the, the, the set design, the shot design, the production of it. I mean, every frame you go, how much money do they put in this thing? How much time and thought and effort do they put into this? They shot nine episodes, and then mid-March came. Boom. COVID-19, everything shut down. And so they had to shoot the last two episodes. As Chris Rock said in that article, he goes, you know how terrified I was? I'm like, that mother effer better not have COVID. The last two episodes we had to do, and we were terrified we're all going to get sick. Well, the episodes are all in the can right now. And the only spoiler I will give, 36 minutes into episode one is one of the best flatulence jokes ever. I mean, I am always down for a good fart joke, blazing saddles, campfire scene. This is flatulence. <laughs> I, I, I'm not, I'm not going to delete it off the DVR. I showed it to my wife, I showed it to my kids. I go, you got to see this. This Italian gangster godfather has a fart for the ages. It's up there with Jeremy Irons' fart in Watchmen, if you've seen that, which, as Rogowski pointed out, the defense rests. Fargo, it's awesome. Ben Travers of IndieWire, another exemplary cast, elevates wordless gestures and already witty lines into exciting entertainment, with Jesse Buckley and Glenn Turman being the overall breakouts. But this version of Fargo feels bleaker than any that preceded it. That's Ben Travers of IndieWire and Roxana Haddadi. Roxanne of RogerEbert.com. Fargo has always been a little off-kilter, but those elements stand out as particularly indulgent or egregious this season when its overall storytelling approach is so uneven. Ooh, Roxanne, not a fan. By the way, Dan Feinberger, Hollywood Reporter, says episode nine is one of the best episodes he's ever seen. Joe, let's talk about Fargo. What do you got? Oh, I, I mean, that fart scene, here's the thing. It, it worked, you know? I. It, it worked in that moment. I think it could have completely derailed the scene, but you're right. Everything is so good about it. The cars, the costume design from that area, the the way they tell the story, they frame it, you know, from the early 1900s to present day 1950. As a native Minnesotan, one, I do like how they're having this season in Kansas City strictly. 
and also Jesse Buckley's character, who's from Minnesota, like every other person who tries to do a Minnesotan accent, it's so over the top. It's just they really lean into the vowels, the oohs, the ahs, the it's not it's a little bit more subtle than that, you know? Yeah, that's the key. You're right. Sometimes people overdo the accent. You go, no one actually talks like that, but I think subtlety is key. And that's the key with Fargo. This is a violent crime show. But it's done in a really elegant manner, and there's that great off-kilter humor. As I mentioned, it's really tough to get the humor right. It's not that Tarantino humor in crime movies. It's something different, but it's really, really well done. Um, I just want to quickly talk about River of No Return, because if you know the podcast, you know how much I love Robert Mitchum. And it's rare that I find a Robert Mitchum I've never seen. But shout out to TCM. I'm scrolling through. Every week I scroll through, and I just see what movies I haven't seen on TCM. I'm halfway through Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. I'm going to do that next week. Sydney Poitier. Never seen it before. Pretty good. Uh, Spencer Tracy, Catherine Hepburn. But I said, oh my God, I mentioned we haven't seen. River of No Return, and it's Marilyn Monroe. Are you kidding? I get to stare at Marilyn Monroe, goddess, for 90 minutes? God, she's pretty. I don't know if you've heard that before. Although much skinnier than you think. Everyone always says, oh, voluptuous Marilyn Monroe. I watched this movie. I told my wife, look how skinny she is. Everyone says Marilyn Monroe was like, like you know, bigger. I'm like, bigger? She's stick skinny in this movie, man. This was 1954. My man Mitchum, barrel-chested, baritone voice, cleft after serving a prison sentence, farmer Matt Calder, Robert Mitchum, returns to his 19th century Pacific Northwest Gold Rush town, retrieves his adolescent son, Mark. Meanwhile, good-hearted barroom singer Kay, Marilyn Monroe, is heading downriver with her boyfriend, Harry, to explore a potential gold claim. When the raft sinks, Harry robs Matt of his gun and horse to continue without Kay on land, sailing downriver toward the claim the trio planned their revenge. It's directed by Otto Preminger. I mean, if you know Otto Preminger, that's a pretty big name, dude. Like, he's done some things. Man with the Golden Arm, great, great Sinatra film, early film about drug addiction back in the early 1950s. The reason to watch this is the stars, and I thought Mitchum and Monroe have excellent chemistry together. If you want a little va-va-voom, like I said, trust me, Monroe, Monroe's uh, singing away there, not quite... Uh, Happy birthday, Mr. President. But she's got some, uh, especially for 1954, rather racy outfits there. Um, but I thought it was a good little story. Listen, it's a, one of these suspense movies, capers, a little silly at times, endings rather abrupt. But 90 minutes, Turner Classic movies, of course I'm in. That's Three Maple Leafs for me. If you want to see some old movies, go check out River of No Return. There's even a song, The River of No Return. Um, a couple of reviews. Dave Keir, Chicago Reader, one of the first films to discover the potential of CinemaScope. That's right. A fine example of Preminger's rational approach to the mysteries of personal morality. Bosley Crowther, New York Times. Guy just sounds like a film critic. Director Otto Preminger has thrown all the grandeur and menace of these features upon the eye-filling CinemaScope screen. Glenn Kenny, talking about Goodfellas, just a second. First, though, you want to know what's happening with movies? Well, listen, I went back. You know I went back. I went back to see Tenet. I want to keep going. But listen, everyone's terrified because Tenet did not do well. Uh, it was a bomb here, folks, domestically. It's going to make back its money, maybe. $200 million budget. I believe it's at about $200 million right now. Most of that overseas in China. By the way, Milan, huge bomb in China. But domestically, I think Tenet is at $35 million. I mean, listen, the theaters aren't open in New York and L.A. There's 15% gone. And by the way, New York and L.A. are great movie hotbeds. So that's out. That's a problem. Analysts have already projected domestic grosses are going to decline between 70 to 80% due to the pandemic. There's only a couple that are still hanging in here. The late November release date of Pixar Soul, that's still hanging on, although that could get moved to Disney+. Plus. But Black Widow, so November 6th, I was fired up. Scarlett Johansson, not going to happen. May 7th, 2021. Not just, hey, let's buy a couple of months. No, no, we're going to buy like seven months. Like COVID-19 is not going anywhere. We're not going to lose all this money. So guess what? We're going to move this sucker to May. Death on the Nile, a follow-up to Murder on the Orient Express. 
December 18th, 2020. Originally supposed to be October 23rd, based on Agatha Christie novels. That's a couple months back. And West Side Story, listen, this was a big one. Steven Spielberg's first ever foray into musicals. Key Academy Awards contender? Uh, it's going to be a year later than expected. Think about that. It was supposed to be December 18th of this year. Like, you know what? Screw it. December 10th of 2021. You got to wait for Steven Spielberg's West Side Story. I think as far as big movies now, Joe, the only one is Bond. I don't think Bond's moving. Bond is American Thanksgiving. And yes, I say that as a Canadian. November 20th, whatever the hell it is. American Thanksgiving is going to be the next big tentpole movie in this country. Yeah, and it'll be interesting to see what lessons they learned from Tenet and how they'll do in the box office. Because I look at this list and all these pushbacks that you said, Adnan, and I personally, I, I don't know, and let me know what you think, if even at that time, on May 7th, 2021, do you real, realistically think that Black Widow would come out that day, or do you think that it would get pushed back? Yeah, like you said, it, it's it's too early to predict right now. All we know is that a lot of these movies are in flux. To your point... Tenet got moved like three times, right? It was July 17th to July 31st. Then it was August. And then like, yeah, screw it. September, slow release. So you're right. When you hear May 7th, you go, listen, wake me up on April Fool's Day and let me know if Black Widow's coming out then. Good news is lots of streaming movies and I'll keep reviewing whatever I can when it comes to Netflix, Hulu, Amazon Prime. And I'll still sneak out to the movies and uh, watch a few flicks along the way. All right, that's your reviews. That's your news. Coming up next, Glenn Kenny, author of the new book, Made Men, the Story of Goodfellas. We must tell you this, though. The audio is a little bit different, so don't start fidgeting with your phone or whatever device you're using. The first 10 minutes, we're recording it on this number, and then the final 20 minutes are on Zoom. So don't be concerned. It's a little bit different. The audio is still clear. It's just a little bit different. Just a heads up. Plus, the Mount Rushmore of TV shows based on movies. That's coming up here on Cinephile. mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Well, if you're a film fan, you know the name Glenn Kenny. He's a fabulous writer, always enjoyed his work for Premier Magazine, and now he's got a tremendous book. It's called Made Men, the Story of Goodfellas, coinciding with the 30th anniversary of one of the greatest films of all time. Glenn, first and foremost, congratulations on a sensational book. I finished it last night. It took me one week to read it. Congrats on a, a marvelous achievement. Thanks for the time today here on Cinephile. Well, I sure do appreciate you having me. I'm, I'm glad you enjoyed it. I wrote it for people who love movies and... Uh, Hopefully, it'll give some joy and illumination to people who love movies. And it's definitely for people who love Martin Scorsese like me. You, you, you meet people every day like me who tell you, Martin Scorsese is my favorite director. I adore his work. And the credit to you is this. I've seen every single one of his movies. I've seen all of his documentaries. I mean, public speaking, American boy, you name it. Even the, the big ones, the small ones, Italian-American, I've seen them all. But your book helped me illuminate in many ways, because I've never had the thrill of actually meeting Martin Scorsese, a lot of ways what he's like. And the way you told that story was through some of the so-called bit parts. A guy like Kevin Corrigan, who 
plays Henry Hill's brother. Of course, he's in the wheelchair. The fact that when he first meets Scorsese, he couldn't help himself. He blurts out praise and goes, oh my God, you're, you're incredible. You're my favorite filmmaker. And Marty kind of laughed, goes, well, it's early in the morning. I could have used that. That was great. Thanks. You know, when he first got together with Ileana Douglas, they had this great camaraderie over the 20,000-year-old man, that great comedy bit of Mel Brooks and Carl Reiner. The fact that he told one of the sound editors, one of the sound mixers, hey, nice work tonight. Sounded good. Like, those little touches really show you how his personality and his generosity comes through. I mean, even the fact that, you know, he wanted to make up shirts at the end. There was no wrap-up party. And it's interesting. When you think about Martin Scorsese, there's a lot that's known about him. He's a motor mouth enthusiast. He's an incredible cinephile. He's mercurial, but he's also very, very generous. And I love the fact you told the stories about his dealings with you. He comes across as tired, a little preoccupied, but a very willing audience always. Absolutely. He's quite fascinating, I think. Uh, he's, a, he's, a, he's aside from a great artist, he's a fascinating personality. And uh, that certainly helps when you're writing a book that somebody is, uh, is, not, a, is not a dull person. <laughs> if your subject or one of your subjects is, uh, is someone who's uh, uh, kind of fascinating and lively and interesting and likable, you know, he's, a, he's kind of, yeah, an, an open book. He loves talking to people about movies. Uh, and if you know a little about movies, he's very, uh, you know, he likes talking about it even more. Yeah, he doesn't strike me. I'm glad you mentioned that. He doesn't strike me as a know-it-all. Like, everyone always refers to him as such because he knows everything about movies, seemingly. But I, I agree with you. It seems like when you reference a movie and when you're referencing something, say, oh, does this remind you of Godard or this is kind of like Renoir or the fact he's a giant poster of cat people in his office. Like, if you reference these things, it's kind of like tennis. You're volleying the ball back and forth. He appreciates you and respects you more. Yeah, no, it's, uh, it's, it's, definitely, uh, it's definitely a way to have a conversation. Uh, and, you know, to kind of bounce ideas off, off, uh, each other, you know, and, and, uh, you know, his, his good friend, Jay Cox, one of his best friends is, uh, was a longtime film critic. And I think that, you know, the film enthusiasm was a real key to their friendship. I love that story at the end, by the way, where you're telling him that you and Jay Cox have been having lunch once a month along with all the other friends, and Marty kind of jokes, well, Jay doesn't tell me anything anymore. Hey, make sure you don't tell Jay I said hi. I thought that was pretty funny, because as you said, they've had a lot of passion projects. Yeah. I mean, I, I love that story of Age of Innocence, when Jay Cox said, Marty, this is you. You're Newland Archer. And the fact, years ago, they had talked about Gangs of yeah. New York, and years ago, Jay was the one that gave him silence and said, you're going to make this. Jay Cox knows him as well as anybody. Yeah, no, they're, they are very close. The person who I thought was very sympathetic at reading your book is Barbara Dufina. Because when you talk about Goodfellas, you'll focus on Marty and Nick Pileggi and uh, obviously De Niro and Pesci and Ray Liotta. But Barbara Dufina is the producer. And unfortunately, over time, she has not been given enough credit for her work. And if you believe her account, Erwin Winkler was a real jerk to her. I don't want to mince words here because I'm sure Erwin Winkler is a great guy and he came across as very well to you in being interviewed for the book. But Barbara Dufina basically makes it sound like I did a ton of work and he excluded my work, called me an executive producer. Producer, and today, everyone you know gives a box of candy, gets an executive producer credit. She was married to Scorsese. Um, Marty was in a relationship with Ileana Douglas, and for her credit, she said that Barbara Dufina and Marty had been split up when they got together. And when you said that to Barbara Dufina, she rolled her eyes. Later on, when you kind of just you know gently said what happened with the marriage, she said Marty had too many demons, and later up that to too much womanizing. I felt really sorry for her reading this book. A, she was stuck in what clearly was a very difficult relationship and later did work with Marty but didn't really get enough credit, I think. And B, she's a part of Goodfellas. This is one of the greatest movies of all time, Glenn, and she doesn't get nearly enough due. It's a strange situation and I think that she uh, ought to have uh, gotten more credit and, uh, you know, certainly uh, from her point of view, um, more uh, money. Uh, and uh, she's not, you know, she's uh, 
it's interesting when I speak with her, um, you know, she still has this um, deep ambivalence because she's proud of the work she did with Scorsese for sure. Uh, and she did really make some key decisions on a lot of uh, important pictures that uh, enabled them to be the kind of pictures they eventually were. Um, but yeah, she feels like she was uh, gypped out of credit. Erwin, Erwin Winkler will talk about it. He'll, he said he said uh, he had his response to Barbara's, um, you know, uh, accounts in the book. Uh, you know, he pointed out for him at the time, uh, sole producer credit, kind of the make or break thing for him, for better or worse. What do you think of that? But he's, you know, he's fine with saying that and being out front about that. He said, you know, I bought the property. I can be the producer. So, you know, there's that. And, uh, but as far, you know, uh, but he, uh, you know, he denies uh, having been dismissive of her and uh, says she did a great job. So, you know, it's a bit of a he said, she said situ- situation. But I do think that Dafina has not been given enough credit. And, and even in the accounts of uh, the films uh, going on uh, at the time, you know, in, in Premier Magazine, uh, that article by Peter Biskin about the making of Cape Fear and... Uh, you know, Barbara doesn't even rank single mention, and she's the person who, you know, among other things, made it possible for uh, a lot of things in uh, in Cape Fear to happen that wouldn't have happened, you know, with a different producer or a less resourceful producer. So, yeah, I, I'm, I was happy to uh, to uh, get her story in there. I wasn't, you know, it wasn't something I was expecting, you know. But I uh, I spoke to her. As I say in the book, she was a little, um, she was quiet. She was um, not terribly assertive. Uh, And uh, it was, you know, it was an okay interview, but it wasn't a, uh, it it, it wasn't a spectacular interview. And, uh, you know, and then she calls me back and she says, well, you know, wait. (laughs) And then the, the floodgates open and she tells me a lot of different things, some of which are, not super flattering to uh, Scorsese, and he he's not inclined to talk about her at all. So he, I did not get a response from him because he's not so he doesn't want to talk about her. And uh, I was told by a couple of people, that, well, Marty's not going to talk about Barbara. Yeah, I'm glad that you included that because I was thinking about that. What, what if he brings it up to her? But it was interesting that you noted the two people who you met with at uh, Scorsese's production office said, listen, he's not going to talk about previous relationships. He's not going to talk about who produced it, that kind of stuff. So it's almost like they're they're going to cut that off of the head before you even get into it. And part of it, as you said, was partly probably Marty's respect for his current wife, Helen Morris, his fifth wife, the fact that she's been dealing with Parkinson's. Yeah, and, I you think know, that has was, to do yeah. with it. You know, I made sure before I went in, because I had heard from uh, Scorsese's assistants about not bringing this subject up. And I said, well, I, you know, I, I won't, obviously it's a condition and I can't do this book without his participation, but I just want to, I want to make sure, is this coming from you or is this coming from Scorsese? Cause I want to, I want to, I want to, you know, I want it somehow from Scorsese and then I'll just let the matter drop. And they said, yeah, it's Marty. So that was that. At least you got your answer. We're talking with Glenn Kenny. He's got a tremendous book. It's called Made Men, The Story of Goodfellas. I encourage everyone to listening 
to read it. You're going to love it. Let's talk about some of the cast. Michael Imperioli, who I've interviewed before, and he told me on this podcast, Cinephile, just how generous Marty was to me. He said he really treated me like an actor, like I was anybody else uh, there on set. He encouraged me to improvise. And part of the key is when he plays Spider, and I thought this was interesting in the book, he had done his research. He had learned or at least knew or maybe intuitively realized De Niro's not a small talk guy. So when he was on set, he had asked the prop guy, listen, can I reshuffle the deck after every take? And before the actors would come to the set, he was sweeping up because that's what Spider would do. And when De Niro walked on, he said, what are you having? And De Niro kind of paused for a second, like, oh, okay, uh, scotch and soda. Like, I thought that was really smart that Michael Imperioli knew, I'm not going to say, hey, Mr. De Niro, you're one of my favorite actors, nice to meet you, I get it. No, no, I'm going to play as if I'm Spider, then afterwards we'll have time for that later on. And another guy in the supporting cast who is fascinating, and I love, <laughs> listen, that whole sequence, Pete the Killer, who's my favorite, by the way, like, he's known as the killer, like, the rest of these guys aren't killing people, but Pete the Killer, I mean, that's Sally Balls' brother. But the guy I love is Johnny Roast Beef, who is not an actor, but a guy who, yeah, that's, yeah. that's his real name. They call him Johnny Roast Beef, and Marty and Pelleggi used to go to an Italian restaurant on the east side. They cast him. I think of all the smaller parts, Glenn, he's tremendous. And the fact that De Niro said to him, at some point, you got to say something to me like, what are you getting so excited for? When he says that in the movie, and you look at the reaction shot on De Niro, like, oh my God, he, that's it. He's fire. And Thelma Scumir had one of the funniest lines in your whole book. She says, we just kept the camera on Roast Beef. You could just see himself disintegrating, just crumbling the way De Niro's tearing him apart. Talk a little bit about Imperioli and Roast Beef. So, yeah, so Imperioli was was very sharp about doing that. And uh, when I interviewed De Niro, I followed up with him about that story. And he said, yeah, you're uh, you're there to work. You're not there to, to hang out. Uh, and, uh, you know, I heard other things at different times. You know, Edward McDonald, when he was doing his courtroom scene, um, you know, he noticed that um, De Niro was being, you know, pretty standoffish uh, throughout. And uh, not because necessarily he was... Uh, it was, it was, you know, he was trying to be rude, but, you know, he's the guy on trial. He's the guy who has to give Henry Hill the uh, death ray stare when Henry Hill points to him during the testimony. So he's just kind of keeping character, you know, making sure that he's, uh, you know, um, always ready to, uh, to, to have that kind of attitude during this courtroom scene where he's, you know, he's about to be pale. So, yeah, uh, he's, uh, he's very concentrated, very focused actor, and uh, he's not there to socialize. And that brings me to, to my own story about meeting Robert De Niro. I met him a few years ago, Glenn, and uh, he couldn't have been more uh, generous. I think he knew what a huge fan I was of him. I had a Tribeca shirt on. I had like a little Travis Bickle, like, you know, figurine. I'm talking to him about Main Street. So he was very thoughtful. He's very intelligent. Um, at one point, I was talking about Taxi Driver, and I said, you know, I'm a Pakistani-Canadian. Uh, wasn't even alive when the film was made, and yet I really relate to your movie. And you're, you know, he's Italian-American, Irish-American, New York actor, yet you're making this movie from Paul Schrader, you know, diverse background, different than you and Marty, et cetera, et cetera. At the end of the interview, De Niro looks at me and says, Pakistan? I said, yeah, that's where my family's from. He said, you should look up this, uh, the Hindu Kush. It's this, it's this tribe. I was just reading about it in the New York Times. You should look it up. I said, okay, sure. Later that day, I got an email. It said from RDN's office. And it was an article that he had talked about, the Hindu Kush. And I said, you know, people think these actors sometimes are not particularly bright. Robert De Niro is a super smart guy. The fact that he recognized something about my ethnicity and wanted to share that with me. And at the same time, I laughed in your book when you asked him about Sunshine of Your Love, that great scene in Goodfellas, how his answer is rather straightforward. Just, you know, Marty had the shot planned. He told me to do this, so I did it. Yeah, no, I mean, when he's being so, I mean, I hope I, I put across in the book that, Adnan, that, uh, that uh, De Niro was very pleasant and generous and wanted to help. He just doesn't process things the way 
the rest of us do. So he's not, uh, you know, he's not, um, he just doesn't think about it in the same way we do. So he's not going to give us necessarily the answers that we want, but in person, he's a very, uh, you know, I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't say he's necessarily super approachable at all times, but on those times where he is approachable, uh, he's a really congenial, you know, good guy. <laughs> I agree. That's a good description of him. I, I often do this thing. We did this thing on the podcast called Three Words. You describe somebody in three words. So I actually asked De Niro, I said, can you describe Marty in three words? And he kind of paused a beat and said, lover of film. And I said, okay. Like I, I was going more for adjectives, but if you were to describe Martin Scorsese, lover of film, that's pretty good. Um, yeah, no, it's great. Um, the music of the movie is, is fantastic. I, I love the fact that you have the notes in there, um, particularly the fact that Marty had written Cream at one point, which Nicholas Pileggi, being a huge Sinatra guy, was like, what, what the hell does Cream mean? But that was, of course, you know, the famous music that he uses, the whole Layla song and the death sequence. Uh, 90% of what they used, Marty knew while they were shooting. Somebody relates that in the book. And the music, Glenn, is remarkable. I think this is one of the greatest soundtracks ever. I mean, I think I think I love 50s and 60s music because I love Goodfellas so much. Playboy Marvelettes. The fact he uses Speedo when Henry first meets Jimmy. Um, sure the Boy I Love, which I love the fact you included in the notes. Scorsese wasn't sure the exact title, but he knew it was the Crystals, and he knew he wanted to use it when Billy Bats gets whacked. And even the fact he thought about using Billy Joel's Only the Good Die Young, but he did not. Speak a little bit about the music, which is so instrumental in this film. Well, I've talked about in the book, Adnan, about, um, you know, he, uh, how the music has a, has a higher function than most needle drops in films do nowadays, you know, and even Scorsese in the book, Scorsese on Scorsese, the interviews with Charles Thompson and Ian Christie, he talks about how irritated he finds it that contemporary filmmakers just sort of reflexively go for big nostalgia evoking hits to, uh, you know, to summon up a certain state of mind or a state of nostalgia, and that it's very kind of automatic and lazy. Uh, and you might mistake Scorsese's approach for being close to that, but the fact is it's, it's not close to that because in his films, the music serves, serves as a form of consciousness, uh, especially in the last uh, scene in Goodfellas of May 11th, it's, it's, it's three different things. You know, It's the accompaniment of the action on screen, but it's also what's going on in Henry's mind reflected in music, but it's also what's going on, but Scorsese's interpretation of what's going on in Henry Hill's mind reflected in the music that he's choosing. You know, and that's in that section where he finds that there are no helicopters flying ahead. It's that patch of blue sky and he, and the soundtrack you hear Muddy Waters singing, everything gonna be all right this morning. I mean, Henry Hill was probably not a Muddy Waters guy, um, but Marty Scorsese is. And, you know, the, but the inside Henry Hill's head, that relief he feels at not seeing the helicopters. And what Scorsese does, especially in that scene, is he orchestrates a suite of, of sound and vision around the music and what you're seeing to create a kind of a immersion in a state of mind and bring the viewer there as well. The fact he used Layla and had the playback machine, like that, that's like old school music videos. Like he, he knew exactly the way the shot had a time to the music. And that song is so mournful and melancholy. Uh, I think it's amazing just how much effort he puts into the music. What's amazing to think about is this. It's to me, like I said, one of the greatest films of all time. Obviously, you don't devoted a book to writing about it. Clearly, your opinion is clear. The early screenings were disastrous in California. The, from an A to an F, it's getting at least C minuses. People are walking out when, uh, you know, Joe Pesci's stabbing Billy Bats. 
and, and they're the, calling for his head. They want his head. Bring us Scorsese. <laughs> right, right. And and Marty gets called on the carpet. He's going to literally talk to Warner Brothers, and he's listening to all their changes. We want to recut this. We want to reshoot this. And then what happens? Uh, what Erwin Winkler says so beautifully, I didn't even want to like spoil it by talking about the contractors. That, uh, and he did what Marty did. <laughs> I get final cut, so to speak. I know it's not the exact term as you point out in the book, but basically Marty can do what he wants. And once the reviews came in, the critics, they were, I can't remember who exactly said it, but they said it wasn't good reviews. These were rapturous. Like the people were losing their minds how good the reviews yeah. were. And therefore, you end up turning a modest profit. And I would say, I think it's Scorsese's most popular movie. Like I think Raging Bull, as you discuss in the book, you know, it's one of the great, voted by many, the greatest film of the 80s. Taxi Driver still endures. Mean Streets was the beginning of all this genius. But Goodfellas, I think of many people, you ask someone on the street, Martin Scorsese, they go, oh, Goodfellas, I love that movie. I think it's his most popular movie. It, it is not, actually. I think, uh, I think actually Cape Fear was his biggest hit. And certainly Wolf of Wall Street was a huge hit. No, but I'm, I'm, I'm not saying financially. No, I'm not saying financially. I'm just saying anecdotally. If you talk to people, I feel like they really love it. I mean, it's, the most, it's definitely the most iconic. Yes, yes. Although with a new generation of 13-year-old Wolf of Wall Street lovers, you don't know what's, <laughs> what's, what's behind us. <laughs> it's an excellent point. Um, the Copa yeah. shot. I don't know if you saw that TikTok video, that terrifying TikTok video of this 12-year-old girl asking all her uh, very um, bourgeois male friends what their favorite movie is and it's a bunch of like floppy haired proud boys saying wolf of wall street i'm like get <laughs> out of here <laughs> that's absurd and listen i i enjoyed it i thought it was a fun movie but that's not even in my top 10 scorsese which brings me to this point well, they definitely fell asleep before the last 45 minutes that's for sure <laughs> Which brings me to this point. One of the best things, again, I loved about your book, and again, everybody read this book. It's called Made Men, The Story of Goodfellas. We're talking to Glenn Kenny. Here's one of the best parts of the book. is like There is tons of details about Goodfellas, right? We'll get into Joseph Riley, the first AD, Thelma Schoonmaker, the editing, the Copa shot, the steady cams, Michael Bauhaus, all that stuff is in there. But I like that you're framing this within Scorsese's own world. So you're talking about not only uh, Goodfellas, but I love the fact you included the interview from earlier this year, 30 years later. This is right before the pandemic hits. He's just about to start shooting Killers of the Flower Moon, which we're hoping next year he's going to start shooting it for Apple. But you discussed some of the other movies he did since 1990. And here's what I'm just curious to you as a guy who really knows movies and loves movies, presupposing my belief that the top four are Raging Bull, Taxi Driver, Goodfellas, and Mean Streets, in whatever order you like. What for you is the fifth best film? Because I love the fact you included Age of Innocence. You mentioned in passing, it's a superb film. I couldn't agree with you more. I think King of Comedy was clearly ahead of its time and evidenced by the fact Todd Phillips blatantly ripped the movie off and made a billion dollars with that ridiculous movie Joker. I think The Irishman is beautifully elegiac and mournful. And I think Silence, the great film critic Ty Burr, I talked to him, he goes, listen, I think Silence years from now, people are going to realize that's a great, great film. Gangs of New York, I don't care for the romantic subplot, which you pointed out the movie was not Marty's thing, but there's sequences in that movie and Daniel Day-Lewis's performance, which endures. So I ask you, Glenn Kenny, what's your fifth best Marty movie? <laughs> I don't know. Maybe it's Wolf of Wall Street. No, um, <laughs> I think Last Temptation of Christ. I mean, it always changes, but I think my favorites are uh, Goodfellas, Taxi Driver, Raging Bull, Mean Streets. And, it's, and then, and then it kind of like toggles between Wolf of Wall Street, Last Temptation, New York, New York, depending on what time of day it is. Love the fact you like New York, New York. When I watch it again as well, I said, listen, as you pointed out in the book, he's combining different things. He's trying to combine Cassavetes with one of these Vincent Minnelli musicals. And at the time, maybe it was tough for people to understand, but I agree with you. I think it's a great film, especially when you watch it again. And I like the fact the ending is very enigmatic. And it was Erwin Winkler's idea, and it did not end up the way he envisioned it, but he still loved it. 
Yeah. And listen, uh, there's one, okay, I got to ask you this too, because in the book you mentioned Julia Cameron says, you know, one of the struggles with New York, New York is of course Marty was struggling with cocaine addiction. Uh, and, and also in the Warhol Diaries, you wrote, there's a story about Marty and Liza Minnelli. What is that story? Because you made an aside to it in the book, but you didn't say it. I think I'd rather not tell it, actually. It's kind of humiliating. Okay, fair and, enough. That, uh, that's fine. I just wasn't sure you mentioned it, and then you didn't go into it, so that's fine. I, if you don't want to say it, that's totally fine. Um, let's move on. You know, on. I had it in an early draft, and I thought, I have enough here about the Scorsese drug abuse stuff. This is kind of scab picking. Let's, you know, it, it's in the book. If people want to find it, they know where to find it. They won't find it too easily, though, because I don't think the book actually has an index. Um, <laughs> Although Spy Magazine published an index back in the day. Um, yeah, so, um, yeah, we'll see. Total, totally but get I, that. That's fine. You know, you're, an attentive, you're an attentive reader. I'm glad, you know, <laughs> not many people have asked that question. I appreciate it because you wrote, it's in the Warhol Diaries. And I said, well, I'm probably not going to look up the Warhol Diaries. I'll just ask Glenn, but that's totally fine. Let's move on. Thelma Schoonmaker is always his secret weapon. She's brilliant when it comes to her craft. I love the fact when Marty introduced her to Michael Powell, her late husband, and one of Scorsese's heroes, uh, when he congratulated her on winning an Oscar for editing for Raging Bull, she got angry. He said, no, don't say that to me. We all know that's Marty's Oscar. Uh, Goodfellas is so superbly edited, Glenn. The pacing of it, it's nonstop. It's such a rush. And yet I'm so happy you included the editor who put it out that continuity error. That bugged me when I was 14 years old. Why does Polly have a cigar in his mouth and then the cigar is gone? And as Thelma Schoomaker points out, well, we're looking at performance rather than continuity. But I love the fact the editor made that point. But was the performance so critical that you wanted to have that continuity error, which stands out? She thought so. I mean, there, it's just that. It's just him and Marty in that room, her and Marty in that room. They are the decision makers. It's up to them. And they decide what's going to play and what's not. You know, they're not unaware. Yeah, and the fact that he had a, a <laughs> it's so funny you wrote that he, he actually had a phone booth built in into his office. Uh, they're in the editing office, just so that he could take calls and just keep getting editing done. They had the music from uh, that show that the quiz show was all about. Later, of course, he appeared in quiz show. Clearly no hard feelings there with Robert Redford. Um, the Copa shot. Everyone always talks about it, and your book illuminates the way no other book has just how complicated and how unique it was. You can tell how much you want to. I don't want to spoil that. I want people to buy the book here, but however much you want to say, Glenn, just about how ingenious it was, the way that they mopped that out. Uh, yeah, I don't want to spoil it either, but it's, uh, let's look, well, there's, there's one thing I have talked about. You know, once you see it, you can't unsee it, and my book will give you a hint on how to see it that way, but they actually... When they go into the kitchen, they leave the same way they came in. They go in a circle. They're not, uh, they're not, they don't need to go through the kitchen. Now, you'll look at it maybe and say, how did that happen? But I'll walk you through how that happened in the book. <laughs> well said. Uh, Ileana Douglas is really charming. Um, I love her on TCM. She's a fellow cinephile like Scorsese. I love the story she told about how one of her mistakes, about one time, even, okay, fine, she's in a relationship with Marty, but she wants to get her moment, and her moment cost the production $20,000. Can you relate that story for us? She uh, gave a line reading during a long, uh, an elaborate tracking shot that was just way out of sync with what everybody else was doing in terms of their performance, because she was trying, in her own words, to be Eve Arden. And it's funny, because in the movie that she first made with Marty, the 45-minute uh, film Life Lessons, which was part of the film uh, New York Stories, she is an Eve Arden character. She plays the best friend. That's the classic archetypal 40s wisecracking best friend of Roseanne Arquette's character. So she'd had experience in that realm before, but uh, here she's doing it in a shot where she needs to be a little more understated. So um, 
and she screws up the line. She overdoes it way badly, and she knows she overdid it way badly. And then Scorsese calls cut. He lies. He says there's a technical issue, and he uh, deals with the fake technical issue. And then he goes up to Ileana, and he says to her, don't do that again. She did. Well, she did. She delivers the she delivers the line properly the next time, and it's fine. Uh, I love the fact that he had the generosity not to call her out. Let's just do this subtly, but very clearly. Oh, oh sorry, one line. We're almost done here, but I got, you got to tell the story. Kevin Corrigan and the high school yearbook photos of Marty. Yeah, he uh, again. He you know it's one of those things where do it once. You know that's cute. Do it too many times because he start. You know this. Um, a relative of Kevin Corrigan went to high school with Scorsese and he had a yearbook and it had pictures of Scorsese and he took it around. He showed it to Marty. He's like, Hey, that's cute. Then he starts showing it to the other member of the crew. He's like, yeah, knock that off. Well, yeah, well, you know, it's undermining to his authority. Hey, look what a geeky guy this was looking at like in high school. Like he needs to hear that. Uh, Frank Vincent is amazing in Goodfellas. Of course, Joe Pesci won the Oscar. He gave that very short speech. It was a bit of a pain on the set, but listen, Pesci's incredible. But I love Frank Vincent because, as you point out in the book, he seemed to enjoy celebrity more than Pesci. They were old friends. They, of course, always got back at each other violently, whether it's Raging Bull, whether it's Goodfellas, whether it's Casino. Finally, Frank Vincent got his revenge. I love the fact in the index, you include a bunch of like mob-supported material in books, including a book that Frank Vincent read. And the most shocking revelation is that he believes that the Thin Red Line, which is a great film. Terrence Malick, I like it more than Saving Private Ryan. Both came out in 1998. He referred to that Terrence Malick film as a man's man's film. That was jaw-dropping to me. You never know. That could have just been the ghostwriter. But I mean, <laughs> there's a good chance he just liked it and said, yeah, put that in. I mean, I'm sure he barely wrote that whole book himself, that it was kind of a idea, a book concept that someone pitched to his agent and said, hey, yeah, well, you know, what, you know, and he looked at the, the percentages and the angle and what he'd get up front. And he said, sure, do it. And this, uh, that, uh, a lot of the heavy lifting went to the ghostwriter, who's a fellow named uh, Stephen Puget, I think. Um, you know, and he probably spent an afternoon or two with Puget, talking to him, giving him notes. And Puget came back with this. So, you know, it's a good I like point. how, you know, he's talking about Sinatra at the Sands. And he talks about how, you know, the conductor is... Uh, Quincy Jones, man, who's a man's man. And, you know, Frank Sinatra is, of course, a man's man. But uh, the producer, Sonny Burke, is just Sonny Burke. And I'm like, well, where's Sonny? Where, why, where'd Sonny Burke fall short? Why is he not a man's man? <laughs> I really like your humor as well. I'm not even going to spoil it, but the, your your review of Gianni Russo's book, particularly the passage, which you said these. Yeah, well, those were, you know, the last words I quoted. I, I really had a had a had a very deep desire to have those be the last words of the book proper. Yeah. So okay, that that's where we're going to end. I want everyone to buy Made Men: The Story of Goodfellas by Glenn Kenny, and you have to read page 359. It is Glenn's synopsis. It is a a line that he's quoting from Gia, Gianni Russo's book with Patrick Piccarelli, Hollywood Godfather, My Life in the Movies and the Mob. Uh, thank you so much for your patience, Glenn. Uh, this is a phenomenal book. Like I said, I always loved your writing with Premiere, and I love your passion for cinema and the fact you're having monthly lunches with Jake Cox. Um, last thing, 
thing because I love Mitchum. Well, I used to, you know. <laughs> yeah, pre-pandemic, yeah. So I, I, I love Mitchum, and I remember Siskel and Ebert when Mitchum and Jimmy Stewart passed, as you know. Uh, I remember Siskel was talking about how great Jimmy Stewart is, you know, America's guy. And Roger Ebert says, hey, when I was growing up, I wanted to be Robert Mitchum. And as you point out in the book, you commissioned an essay from Scorsese about Mitchum and Stewart because they both die within a very short time of each other. Is that essay still readily available? If not, where can I find that? Because I want to read that. You can't. Unfortunately, you know, there's a big sore spot for me. Premier Magazine uh, was taken over by some real short-sighted people who didn't digitize the archive. So unless you actually have a, um, a physical copy of the issue, which I don't recollect what it, I mean, obviously I can probably guess given that when, when Robert Mitchum and, and Jimmy Stewart died, but unless you have a physical copy of the issue, I don't think it's available. I'm going to work on making that not happen, though. We'll see. Yeah, please. Listen, for guys like me, I want to read that. Because I, I vaguely remember, I, I know the first line, I feel like Scorsese wrote something like Robert mentioned. I thought, I thought it had been reprinted in a book, one of those best film writing of such and such a year books. But uh, I, I, I couldn't find it. All right. Um, we'll do some digging because I, I, I vaguely remember Scorsese saying something to the effect of Robert Mitchum wasn't film noir. He, you know, something he was film noir, something along those lines. But I'd love to read the whole thing again. Bottom line is this: everybody, go buy, go read *Made Men: The Story of Goodfellas* by Glenn Kenny. It's one of the greatest movies of all times. There's stories about everything you want to know about the movie. Stacks Edwards. By the way, okay, here's the last one. I promise I'll let you go. The treatment of African Americans. I thought was very interesting. The fact that you pointed out they use the N word very liberally in *Goodfellas*. Uh, they reference it in *Mean Street. It's not the N but the fact that Keitel can't date the go-go dancer because she's black. And yet in The Irishman, Pesci doesn't use that racial epithet. It's almost like Marty realized, hey, with the times here, it's going to be different. And I love the fact Isaiah Whitehead plays the doctor in Goodfellas, a nice sympathetic African-American actor. Yeah, no, I mean, these are all interesting topics. I go into them in some detail in the book. And I think, you know, Scorsese's a filmmaker who's attuned to the times. He knows how to read the room and he knows, you know, what'll fly and what won't fly. Back when Goodfellas was made, the... Uh, the taboo uh, about you know using those racial epithets as white people in character was not uh, was not you know a prominent one, and it's it's become so since. And yeah, Scorsese is not someone who pointlessly you know flouts those kind of conventions. I also liked his reaction when you mentioned Harvey Weinstein, the fact he is now in prison. If you want that reaction, read the book. It's called Made Men, The Story of Goodfellas by Glenn Kenny. Great, great book, Glenn, and I really appreciate your generosity today. Thanks so much. Thank you. Great talking to you. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, the trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance.
Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. Mount Rushmore. All right, once again, thanks so much to uh, Glenn Kenny. God, he's great. In case you want to know more about Glenn Kenny, by the way, uh, interesting guy. I mean, like I said, he mentioned Premier. Things obviously didn't work out well when it ceased publication in 20, 2007. But he's written for the LA Times, Rolling Stone, Entertainment Weekly. He edited an anthology in Star Wars. He written a monograph on actor Robert De Niro for the French film magazine Cahier du Cinema. He's also acted in Steven Soderbergh's The Girlfriend's Experience, the Girlfriend Experience, excuse me, and Preston Miller's God's Land. Lastly, he was in the 2012 Sight and Sound poll in which he listed his 10 favorite movies. This is interesting. Anatomy of a Murder, Belle du Jour, Boudou Save from Drowning, never heard of it. Celine and Jules Go Boating, never heard of it. Citizen Kane, have heard of it. Dr. Mabuse the Gambler, Psycho, The Searchers, Singing in the Rain, and Stalker. So if you think my tastes are a little bit elitist, I'm just kidding. Glenn Kenny definitely going with some old school choices there. I'm sure most of you are at least aware of, have heard of, Citizen Kane, Psycho, and The Searchers. Scorsese, of course, big fan of The Searchers, uh, big influence on Taxi Driver. Right now, Mount Rushmore, TV shows based on movies in honor of Fargo. This is a little bit dicey. I thought there'd be a better list here. So Fargo, of course, right away is out of the gate. Okay, that's in. Friday Night Lights, awesome, right? People love it. An incredible movie. Billy Bob Thornton, the show. Kyle Chandler uh, was really well done in terms of uh, Connie Britton as well. You know, getting the essence of it. It's sweet, but it's still dramatic and realistic. So I'm going to put those two are there for sure. Fargo and Friday Night Lights. How about MASH? Like people don't even realize it's a movie. They just know the TV show. They're like, what? Alan Alda, is he in the movie or is he in the TV show? I don't know. I just love MASH. Okay, great. So MASH has to be in there. 1972 to 1983, it was on CBS. Now you're thinking I might go young Indiana Jones? No. How about What We Do in the Shadows? No. Stargate? Mm-mm. Maybe The Mandalorian. A little love to John Favreau. I'm not going to do it. I'm going to go with Teen Wolf. And I'll be completely honest, I haven't even seen the TV show. I just like anything involved with Teen Wolf. I love the fact that there was a show based on the movie Teen Wolf, because I love Michael J. Fox. Teen Wolf is my fourth choice. The Mount Rushmore TV shows based on movies, Fargo, Friday Night Lights, MASH, and Teen Wolf. I feel like Joe might give some love to Westworld. What do we got? Okay, I have... I, I'm going to get MASH out of the way, and the uh, just how, how iconic it was. I wasn't alive for when it was on, but I'll, I, I think that that needs to be thrown on, so I'll agree with you on that. I'm also going to go with what we do in the shadows. Uh the, the the movie itself might be the funniest documentary or mockumentary that I've ever seen. And so I'll give that some love. It's on FX, and you think it would be a one-note joke, but it never stops. It's very, very funny. They do a great job with it. Um, after that, I will go with Buffy the Vampire Slayer, Sarah Michelle Gellar. They also did, you know, experimental episodes, musical episodes, and and also I'm a sucker for practical effects. They had a lot of those in that show. And then my final one, I'll have to go with Fargo. Yeah, nice. I just love it too much. I'll just, I just, I know typically we don't opt for the the shows or t- movies that we're reviewing for the Mount Rushmore, but I think it's too good to leave off of the list. It is absolutely incredible. So my four are Fargo. Buffy the Vampire Slayer, What We Do in the Shadows, and MASH. 
I love it. Well done, man. Good Mount Rushmore, the TV shows based on movies. Everybody go watch Fargo. It's on FX. I didn't mention that off the top, but it's on every Sunday. A little tough because you don't want Sunday Night Football. We can just DVR it and watch it afterwards. No big deal there. Uh, thank you as always for checking out Cinephile. Thank you once again to Glenn Kenny. You can follow him on Twitter at Glenn, G-L-E-N-N underscore Kenny, K-E-N-N-Y. Hopefully we'll get this contract dispute settled with uh, Scott Rogowski. And perhaps we get a, a guest we're working on here, Aunt Viv from Fresh Prince. We're going to see if we can get that done here. Uh, hopefully that'll happen next week, as well as uh, reviews of new films. Never, rarely, sometimes, always. It's a film that came out this year. It's about teen pregnancy, 99% on Rotten Tomatoes. It's on HBO on Thursday. I'm going to look forward to watching that. Plus, a movie that doesn't, didn't do well, Downhill, Will Ferrell, Julia Louis-Dreyfus, also is on HBO on Saturday. So I'm going to try to watch that and get those reviews to you for next time. Thanks, as always, to my man Joe Engelbrecht, Sean Cherry, helping us out with our interviews. My name is Adnan Virk. This is Cinephile. Support us at Cinephile underscore pod. Or Adnan Esfer, I'll see you at the movies. Grand Canyon University's RN to BSN online degree program makes earning your bachelor's in nursing possible. Balance online coursework with local in-person clinicals to position yourself for potential leadership opportunities in the time you have from wherever you are. Leaving room for what matters. Achieve your goals with your personalized plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu.